Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Later in the show, we'll hear from Dale Vince, the chairman of Forest Green Rovers and owner of the electricity and energy company Ecotricity. Uh, First, Kieran, how are you? You had a lovely trip to Durham this week, I understand. Yes, yes. I was asked to uh, speak to the the Durham Union and... uh, uh, I, I'm still not quite sure why they wanted to listen to somebody that teaches double entry bookkeeping for a living, but uh, you know, it's uh, it, it, a gig's a gig, um, and uh, yeah, really smart kids up there as well. I was very impressed. Yeah, uh, Durham University Union, Kieran. In case people are thinking you're some kind of uh, coal mining union or old fashioned seventies <laughs> type union, you're going to say, uh, Kieran, if you'll indulge me, I'd just like to uh, share a, a small message with our listeners. It, it is about football finance, so I think it's Ooh. pertinent. Um, as you know, we recorded Monday's edition of the show on, on Saturday because you had to spend the whole of Sunday going to Leicester via Plymouth so you could get a decent price ticket. Uh, and I had to spend the whole of Sunday in a pub and then being infuriated by the worst refereeing performance I can remember at any game of football. So my message to fans is if anybody has the home phone number of referee Kevin Friend, I will pay for it because uh, he needs a full and independent assessment of his opinion. So so it is football for my Kieran, because I am asking for the phone number of a referee in order not to intimidate him, Kieran, but maybe just to point out the error of his ways because I, I, the fact that he gets paid – for doing that and the fact that I know so at least one uh, commentator I think it was on the radio apparently it was reported saying it's amazing that even though they were losing 3-1 Palace fans stayed behind to support their team they didn't they stayed behind to shout abuse at the referee as he left the pitch it's what they stayed behind it was astonishing Kieran but having having got that off my chest and, and I'm only going to half promise not to mention it again in the rest of the pod <laughs> Do the rest of the season. Let's let's go. It's it's Newsday, Kieran. Um, we were hoping to have positive news for Derby fans and uh, joyful news for Derby fans. I don't think we have either. But on the other hand, I don't think we've got more bad news either, have we? Um, no, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I've just been on a two-hour live show on Radio Derby with yeah. some people from supporters groups and so on. Um, and they were saying that there is the possibility on Thursday of an announcement from the administrators. Um, They are looking forward to that. Uh, This weekend, they are hosting Birmingham City, um, and it's going to be... I think if people have read things from the EFL, perhaps they might have read too much 
Um, yeah, there's a genuine fear that the club might not be in existence on the 1st of February. I don't think that's the case. They, they did sell one of their youth players, Dylan Williams, this this week for around about 400 grand. So that will give the administrators money to, 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 to pay the next set of costs going out. The EFL don't want to close Derby down uh, unless it's it's worst case scenario. And I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, so I think uh, th- this weekend's match, uh, Birmingham are unhappy with their owners. Derby fans are unhappy with a lot of issues to, uh, at present. Yeah. So I think it, was, it will be a, a, a be, it'd be a crackling atmosphere. But I think both sets of fans will be potentially singing the same songs at times. Yeah, we saw the anger of Birmingham fans at their game on uh, Saturday when they marched around the pitch. We're recording this on Wednesday night, Kieran, quite late on because of your appearance on Radio Derby. Um, last night, Sky were reporting that today was what they kept calling D-Day. Uh, I don't know whether they thought they were being clever because Derby uh, starts with a D, um, and so does Day, which is why D-Day was called D-Day. But uh, <laughs> a little historical nugget of information for you there. Um, I was never more ashamed to be called Kevin than I was on Sunday afternoon, I have to say, Kevin. But... Um, <laughs> Why? Why did Sky have it in their in their mind that, that it seemed to me that they were expecting some kind of um, doomsday D Day uh, announcement from the EFL today? And what are I, I hate? I hate to even ask you this question, Kieran. I genuinely hate to ask you this question because I know that there are so many Derby fans listening to us in the hope of getting some unbiased information. What are the circumstances, the parameters now by which the EFL reluctantly or otherwise would not allow Derby to continue as a club for the rest of the season? Well, if the administrators go to the EFL and say, we've done our level best, but we do not think we have uh, sufficient money to run the club for the rest of the season, then then we've got a crisis. Right. Um, but the fact that they, they've sold Dylan Williams, um, I'm sure there will be, uh, you know, it's the 26th of January today. Could they sell other players before the end of the month, which could generate enough money to, for them to see out the season? Then, then you know, we, we've got until you know, uh, you know, May to, to sort things out. Um, it, it's a case of, doing things to buy time. And that's what you're always trying to do in uh, in, in administration as an insolvency practitioner. Uh, you know that the sands of time are against you, so therefore you try to sell stuff to, to pay the bills and you try to cut the costs. Um, the, the administrators, I think, in, in my opinion, and it's just an opinion, I, I think they could possibly have done more with regards to those. Whether that would have resulted in the club earning fewer points, yeah, I, I can see that that is their counter argument, um, but uh, I'm I'm still quietly confident that there will be a positive resolution. Um, the fact that we have three bidding groups is good. The fact that one has effectively outed themselves and said that they've made a an indicative bid, twenty eight million, um, effectively sets a marker for the other two interested parties to know that. That's that's now the day minimus, and uh, therefore, if uh, either the the Appleby Group or the Mike Ashley Group want Derby um, a lot, then they're going to have to ask. Uh, then they will have to bid more money. And, and many people, of course, saying here that the next possible crisis is when the players have to be paid, which I don't slightly understand. 
A, I presume players can agree to defer their wages in FC, but not all players surely are paid on the same day, are they? It's not, it's not like a company or the NHS where everyone's paid on the last day of the month or the first day of the month, is it? I, I think there is a monthly payroll run, so right. um, it, there, there is a big cash commitment. Um, but that that's another option for the uh, administrators. It's to it's to get around the table with the players and say, uh, if you agree to a deferment of wages, you will be football creditors, so therefore you will get the money. But again, cash flow is critical, and it, it pushes back in terms of timing. Um, some of those players are not on a lot of money. You know, the kids that have come through the academy and so on might be on uh, not particularly lucrative contracts. Some other players could probably take a hit for two or three months um, and they'd have the eternal gratitude and legend status amongst Derby fans if they if they took that approach and it allowed the club to um, continue to, to trade for the remainder of the season, which, again, I'm, I'm quietly confident about. Good. Uh, normally... I have to say, Derby fans who are listening to this, Kieran's instincts are usually spot on. So that is good news for you. Other news stories, Kieran, and the first one is almost beyond bizarre. Uh, FIFA president Gianni Infantino has come up with a very uh, novel, is the only way I can describe it, reason for why there should be a World Cup every two years. Yeah, I think this is one of the most obscene things I've yes. seen in relation to football for an awful long time. I, I was going to say tasteless, Kieran, but I think you've probably hit the, the, the nail on the head. Yeah, what, what he's tried to do is to have some form of equivalence uh, of the, the creation of a biennial World Cup um, and the additional money that that would generate, which FIFA could then distribute to its members. And, and all of FIFA's decisions are driven by money, and that, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but let's not try to dress it up as something else. Um, Infantino has come out and said um, it could help uh, migrant uh, African migrants from, I quote, death in the sea. Um, I one can only presume less fewer less people or fewer people trying to to cross the Med from Africa to Europe. Um, I, I don't see the link myself, uh, directly or indirectly. And if Mr. Infantino was so concerned about uh, the livelihood of people, then I think there are certain issues uh, in relation to the um, World Cup for the last two or the, 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 the event taking place later this year and also what's happened in Russia uh, in terms of, yeah, uh, yeah we have... Yeah, we are aware that there have been problems in the construction of some of their stadia um, and, and people have lost lives as a result. So um, he, he seems to want to be Mother Teresa when it suits him and he wants to be a politician and diplomat when it suits him as well. But it's also this, if, if he was saying we'll have a World Cup every two years and I'll tell you what we'll do, we'll have it in third world countries uh, because that's a way of helping those countries infrastructure-wise, economy-wise. But to to imply that these desperate people have two choices, one of which is to risk death by paying everything they've got to evil, evil people to take their chances on crossing the sea uh, to this country, but the other is to take a job 
for peanuts on a construction site. It just, it, again, he just has, and I, I'm sure, I don't know him, we don't know him, people who do know him may say, no, no, he means well, his heart's in the right place, but it was, I mean, it's a very bizarre statement and it's, it doesn't reflect well on football, full stop, unfortunately, Kieran. Yeah, and, uh, and, and also in, in respect of World Cups, they lose money for the host country. Yeah. You know, uh, we, we saw uh, that yes. in Brazil. We saw South that Africa, in South Africa. Yes, yes absolutely. Um, Germany was different in, was it 2006? Because Germany already had the infrastructure. Yeah. So therefore it didn't have to go and spend a lot of money on expanding stadia and so on. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's bizarre. It's a proxy war between FIFA and UEFA. Now, by all means, have a squabble, but for heaven's sake, don't, Bring people's lives and yeah. you know the issue of, of migration and what's happening there into it. It's they're, they're completely disconnected. Yes, of course they are. And talking of UEFA, they expect the rights income for the new look Champions League to rise to more than four billion pounds. Yes, yes. So um, what what UEFA did? I think this was partially being pushed by clubs before Super League was announced, and certainly accelerated following the announcement of Super League, was to find some new agencies to go out and to sell the TV rights and to sell uh, sponsorships and so on. And for people that are uh, might not be familiar with the, the new format of the Champions League, um, this is something which uh, clearly uh, no fans have been consulted about. Um, it's, it's more matches uh, taking place in what's known as the Swiss model, <laughs> where I, I think you you now have thirty six teams that play five home games and five away games, and the the opposition is decided by some form of draw, um, and then you go through to a round of sixteen and so on. So the the benefits for the club, um, if if we take a look at Liverpool for example in twenty nineteen when they won the Champions League, they made around about a hundred million pounds in prize money from UEFA. Um, that's likely to go up by 40%. So the, the winners will be getting somewhere in the region of 140 to £150 million pounds from TV money. They will also have um, two extra home games uh, for a club like Liverpool, probably making around about £3 million pounds per home fixture. They will be getting extra money from sponsors because they will be in broadcast more often. So it will be very lucrative for those clubs that do qualify for the Champions League if we end up with uh, an embedded set of four or five clubs that are doing every year, the, the disconnect between the rich and the not so rich, which is already huge in the Premier League, yeah. is going to be amplified further. And the glass ceiling, which exists in football, and, and again, you know, we've, we, we, we started off talking about Derby. Well, you and I are both old enough to remember Derby County winning the old first division. Derby County yep. doing fantastically yep. well yep. in Europe. Yep. And they were followed by Forest and Villa and Everton. And we've seen Blackburn and Leeds United. And all of these clubs who have won um, the, the old first division in merit, the trouble with this, this extra money being concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer clubs is that we are heading for the Bayern Munication of English football um, in the sense that it's going to be you know, one from three every year. Uh, you know, I appreciate in Germany it's one from one every year. And, and that's that's 
taking away some of the magic of the Premier League. The reason why it's so successful globally is that there is an element of sporting merit and chance in it. <clears throat> yes, that glass ceiling you talk about in the Premier League is much harder to break through when you've got Kevin Friend on the other side of it polishing it for Liverpool. Uh, although I have to say, Kieran, Kevin Friend might be a terrible referee. Jordan Henderson, on the other hand, very good ref. He was exceptionally exceptionally good with his decision-making on on Sunday and communicated it to Kevin Friend very well. Now, um, we've had several Manchester United fans, Kieran, uh, suggesting to us that perhaps we could distinguish at times between Manchester United and the Glazers. Um, now, I understand that uh, because you know, you, many United fans are uneasy uh, about the Glazers and what they do, but Manchester United, a.k.a. the Glazers, have just published their latest accounts. What do they tell us? Yeah, so... so- the, the way that Manchester United works is, remember, the club is registered in the Cayman Islands. Yeah. It is traded in New York and it is majority owned in Florida. And I think you have to separate out sorry, Manchester could, United PLC. Sorry, Kim, could you just explain that majority owned in Florida? I've not, that's a phrase I've not heard you use before. Does well, that... that's, that's, that's the Glazer family. Oh, I see. Right. OK, I've got you. Yeah. So you have you have to separate um, that out from um, proper Reds, and yeah. you know I, I I played for Trafford Cricket Club uh, for for thirty years, and so yeah you know, I, I shared a dressing room, and it was half red, half blue, yeah, and me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, although I imagine both sides were united in the, uh, agreeing that you were a soft southerner, Kieran. I imagine. Oh, 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 oh yeah, yeah, soft southern shite. That was my nickname <laughs> among, amongst many. <laughs> Nicknames are supposed to be short and snappy, Kieran. SSS, <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> um, and. Yeah, United United's core fan base is absolutely fantastic, and also some of the the Manchester United fanzines are written passionately, wittily, um, forensically uh, in you know yes. commenting upon their club, and that's how fanzines should be. And and for all those Manchester United fans, I've I've got got nothing but respect. So separate the fans from the owners. Um, I, I also have to say, Kieran, again, I'm sorry for interrupting you again. That uh, in in my uh, role as a broadcaster. Whenever I visited Manchester United Football Club, uh, I've been t- treated very well by the staff at Man United. Yeah. The people that work at the club are very decent people, in my experience. Yeah, yeah, they are because because yeah. they're local lads. Yeah, yeah, and lasses. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, my mate Dodgy Pete Brooks, um, <laughs> he's he's one of the, the the chief stewards there, and you couldn't meet uh, a nicer guy. And he's quite legendary. You, you might again. You might remember this from uh, you know growing up in the seventies. And there was a picture of a Manchester United fan. I think it was at Elland Road with a dart in his eye. Right, that's Dodgy Pete Brooks, uh-huh. and who, who who I shared a dressing room. I played cricket with Pete at right. Trafford. Did they call um, him? Did they call him Dodgy Pete because he didn't dodge? His <laughs> uh, his uh, his his running, his his calling of singles was quite legendary. <laughs> So, but don't, don't, if, if Dodgy Pete calls you for a quick one, don't, don't. I've, I've, I've often used that as a guide in life, Kieran. Anybody calling me for a quick one has <laughs> quite often led me into weekends full of trouble. 
So um, Manchester United did publish their accounts in the USA uh, about six months ago or five or six months ago. And so we did pick up most of the figures, but American rules are different from UK rules. So therefore, we can go into the, the UK accounts and pick out a few things that they don't show in, in, in the States. Um, and I think perhaps some of the stuff that United fans might feel slightly bridling about was uh, Ed Woodward got a £2.9 million salary in his final year of the club. Remember the year in which he was uh, he, he was behind uh, Super League, you know, yeah, uh, and, yeah. you know not... Uh, and, and he's trying to distance himself from that now, but uh, I, I don't think that's held uh, that holds a lot of water with uh, with proper Reds. So United did lose money, but that was on the back of COVID. They lost thirty eight million. Um, another interesting thing was that uh, Manchester United's women's team their results came out, and yeah, they, the United's women's team lost money. But it, I think they are now pretty close to having one of the biggest wage bills in in the WSL. Oh. Um, their wage bill went up forty percent, um, and I think uh, United are are certainly attracting players. They're they're they're, they're competing uh, fiercely this season uh, for for the title. So um, it's uh, it's it, their, their women's team has done extremely well, considering it was only set up three or four years ago. Uh, talking of the Super League, uh, producer guy in a fit of enthusiasm, sent the questions in for our next pod today for some reason. Ooh. I think he thought maybe if he gave me an extra day's notice, I might actually do some proper research. I don't know. He thought wrong. Um, <laughs> but there's a very interesting question in there about the creation of an African Super League, which I'm looking forward to hearing you uh, talk about uh, in terms of our own Super League, the Premier League. Clubs are set to lose millions in television revenue as a result of their insistence on postponing matches due to COVID outbreaks and injury crises? Um, yes. So clearly it's been quite a sensitive issue in terms of how matches have been called off at short notice. Yeah. Um, there have been uh, subtle and not so subtle accusations of clubs gaming the system, perhaps Arsenal. waiting for <laughs> waiting for yeah. players Arsenal. to return yeah. from AFCON. <laughs> um, uh, to, they, they might have some injuries. And also the inconsistency is that you've you've got, you know, for example, Arsenal sent a player out on loan yeah, to Middlesbrough, and then a couple of days later, the matches uh, matches are called off due to not being able to raise a team. So I, yeah. I think there there have been eyebrows raised, um, but this has cheesed off the, the the broadcasters because a lot of the matches were, were quite high profile, yeah, and those matches are being rescheduled. So Amazon pay their money to the Premier League because the two slots that they get are perfect for Amazon's ambition of getting people to sign up for Amazon Prime. Yeah. So you, you, can, you can effectively have a 30-day trial. Um, the first set of fixtures takes place a couple of weeks before Christmas. Then you've got the fixtures between Christmas and New Year. They work really well for Amazon Prime because people get a bit bored, they go on it, they get... They get seduced by the ecosystem um, of Amazon Prime, and you know it, it. It does it does deliver stuff very quickly, and it's a very comprehensive set of things that you can buy there, and and therefore you you get locked in customers. So that works really well for Amazon. If some of those matches are postponed, 
and therefore they get rescheduled for January, February, March. That doesn't work for Amazon. So yeah, yeah. You know, they 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 are not particularly happy. I think BT Sport have suffered disproportionately because they had some midweek fixtures as well, which were hit fairly hard. Um, what can the Premier League do? It can it can go down a variety of routes. A, it can say, okay, we we are unable to uh, supply what we had committed to in terms of the contract and we'll give you a refund or they can try to offer additional matches later in the year. We'll have to wait to see how the broadcasters respond. I think the senior broadcasters, uh, and, and in that I mean BT Sport and Sky, um, they were pretty pretty sanguine um, when when this originally happened as a result of the, the lockdown a couple of years ago. Um, they ultimately wanted a, a Premier League product to, to be able to show. So they did take a rebate, but that rebate's being spread over three or four years. Whether the broadcasters are going to be as generous when the the reasons behind some of these postponements uh, have not really been in, entirely clear uh, is is yet to be determined. Yeah, I, I believe we discussed this at a time, and it was very early on, in our podcast career, Kieran, we we barely knew each other at the time, and I'd only just discovered you were a Brighton fan, so I was a bit sulky. <laughs> um, but Amazon's first round of matches were in uh, at the end of 2019, and I worked on a TV show they did leading up to it with with Gabby Logan, Peter Crouch, and John Bishop. And Amazon execs that I got friendly with were quite open about the fact that their model relied on on people. Uh, subscribing to Amazon Prime or taking the free 30-day trial in order to watch yep. games and then forgetting to uh, to cancel it, essentially. And I think the number they talked about was it was as many as 80% of people who took the free trial then didn't cancel it and ended up paying. So I can understand why Amazon would be particularly unhappy about losing the games. And as well, some of them, uh, the Arsenal-Liverpool League Cup game, for example, was cancelled at less than a day's notice. Hmm. And Sky were visibly, visibly unhappy when they were announcing that, that that game wasn't wasn't going on. But you could also argue that part of the problem, Kieran, over the winter holidays and Christmas holidays, is that partly due to broadcasting, clubs are forced to play so many matches that it's not surprising their players are struggling. Yes, yes. You know, we we have come from a uh, a short summer break. Matches are being concentrated into. Um, uh, a shorter period of time. We've got next season. I think next season starts on the thirty first of July yep. because of the the, the World Cup. Yep. So um, there's there's no sympathy, I think, from fans in terms of you know, players earn a lot of money, therefore they should be able to play. But if the players have got if players end up with soft muscle injuries, you can't play. You can't play with a knackered hamstring. Um, you know, regardless of how much you're paid. So uh, yeah, I mean it. I, I love football. I, I, I become footballed out at times, yeah. and yeah, when it's when it's people like us who are pretty hardcore, thinking I just really can't be that arsed anymore. Um, you've got to wonder whether we've got the balance quite right. Yeah, I imagine when you were in those Manchester dressing rooms, they thought all your muscles were soft. I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by Packed Coffee. Big coffee is bad coffee, full of underpaid farmers and low-quality over-roasted beans, all of which just leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Packed is changing the coffee industry from the grounds up. 
from paying a price that's more than fair to knowing farmers on a first name basis. Pact builds long term relationships that flourish, putting the needs of their partners first and providing coffee that's personal to their customers. With Pact, you'll get award winning speciality coffee, freshly roasted to perfection for your order and ground just moments before it's shipped. There's over 15 different coffees on the menu at any given time to choose from, including Great Taste 2020 and 2021 winners. So make a pact to make better coffee now. Price of Football listeners can get a free brewing kit with their first order. So go to pactcoffee.com, that's P-A-C-T coffee.com, and enter the code P-O-F at the checkout when you sign up for a packed coffee plan to create your flexible coffee subscription and get that free brewing kit. Make a pact to make better coffee. Better for the farmer, better for the consumer, better for the planet. I'm Steve Lamarck and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Um, now, we've talked quite a lot about uh, cryptocurrency, Kieran, recently, Pod, and, and I have to admit I still don't fully understand the concept. So last week we spoke to Peter McCormack, who's a Bitcoin disciple and the new owner of uh, Bedford FC, uh, and did, in fact, because you uh, suggested he might like to uh, enjoy a proper working-class football experience along with his American cameraman, did turn up in the Porson's Arms before the Liverpool game on uh, Saturday, or Sunday, I beg your pardon, with his, his American cameraman, which caused some consternation because there are people in that pub who don't like to be filmed under most circumstances, <laughs> <laughs> especially when they're sitting in the back of the porter's arms. Um, but it was very interesting, though, because a lot of, as you know, you've met, you know, I, there, there are about 30 people. I know everybody in that pub yep. by, by you know, name or recognition, but there's about 30 of them who have been friends for a, a long, long time. And, and six or seven of them uh, were very aware of Peter and were very interested in, in Bitcoin. And he, was, he, he went some way to explain it. And what he was passionate about in particular was that Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency that is, has value or merit. Uh, and that's illustrating. This is a very long-winded way of saying that one of sport's biggest cryptocurrency-based platforms has gone into liquidation this week. Yes, this is a company called uh, Iquonix. Uh, so you always have these strange names, I-Q-O-N-I-Q. Um, and it had it had deals with some big players in football. So it had a deal with La Liga, with McLaren Formula One. It was also the supposed to be Palace's sleeve sponsor. It was. And, and Palace have now taken out legal action against Iconics because they they didn't pay yeah. on the due dates. Yeah. 
So um, I think it is showing the perils in relation to some of these these currencies. And I was looking at a, uh, at an article which said yeah, a, a thousand cryptocurrencies have come and gone. Mm-hmm. So you know, Bitcoin is is by far the the highest profile one. Uh, you know, Peter McCormack himself said it's it's the only one that he deals with, um, and he views it as an alternative payment platform and you know i've i've said all along um you know i uh, I, I send money across to my mum because my mum lives in a little village in ireland yeah um and it, it costs me i think it costs me 30 quid every time yeah and i'm going well you know i'd rather that 30 quid goes to my mum but yeah you know, why am i having to pay a bank because it's yeah. how much effort does the bank put into doing this yeah and it, it's it's all automated um, and yet the banks do make an awful lot of money from from payment platforms themselves, which has created unhappiness and as and as partially has been a, a contributory factor to cryptocurrencies and alternative. It's a lot cheaper way of transferring uh, some form of payment to to somebody else. Um, and and as as that, I think it's great. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's, it's fine. Um, provided you've got some form of security and, so, and some form of, of uh, a faith in the system, um, all of these other, uh, all, all of these sort of new kids on the block, they seem to have just been set up as as a vehicle to to make a quick a quick buck, and there is a danger of them going out of business. Um, we've also seen in relation to cryptocurrency and uh the the nfts these sort of digital pictures which you pay money for yeah. um john terry and ashley cole look like they're going to be up on some form of uh rap because they've been promoting these products which have uh likenesses to the premier league trophy now yeah, we've spoken yeah. at, on many occasions about um, intellectual property. Well, you you can't use or you can't pretend to use the the Premier League trophy as as a vehicle to sell your own products. Yeah. Um. So you know it, it's it, it's messy. Um. And my reservations, which are always the same three, it's it's unregulated, it's volatile, and it's open to manipulation. They 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 stand. Uh. And unfortunately. The the people that have used Iconics who have perhaps bought NFTs are now finding out that they are completely worthless, and it's uh, it, it's it needs some organisation to step in to to give some sort of kite mark. But given the somewhat uh, rebellious nature of the, the cryptocurrency market, of course they don't want regulation yeah. they? because because that would be that would be you know handing across power to some form of an establishment. Uh, two questions, Kieran. Uh, I hesitate to say this because Kevin Friend was the worst thing that happened to Palace this weekend. But this is an embarrassing story for my club because there was a big, a big fanfare when Palace announced the, the, their relationship, their partnership with Iconics. First of all, why has it gone into liquidation? And secondly, why does it appear that Bitcoin is the safest and most credible of the cryptocurrencies? Well, um, in terms of iconic companies going to liquidation because they spend more money than they generate. That's right. as simple okay. as that. So what you've got to ask yourself is, well, what's the money being spent on? And Iconics had, you know, say, deals with La Liga. It signed a, a three-year sponsorship deal with Essex County Cricket Club. 
um, in 2021. So money potentially was going out to to the institutions which they they were sponsoring. And, and why are they why are they trying to constantly uh, align themselves with sports clubs? It's because the thing is, Crystal Palace is is a is a trusted brand. Essex yeah. County Cricket Club, trusted brand. La Liga, you know, they they are they and they are they are held in high regard by by the fan base. Um, so you know, it's it's not because they love football or cricket. You know, they, I, I can't make that. You know, I, I really think that's that's absolutely critical to get across. Yeah. So, <clears throat> um, they, they go bust. And in terms of um, your second question, I think. Bitcoin is in a similar position to Amazon in that it was first out of the block right. and therefore it allowed itself to build a certain size. And you you do become a, a dominant party in the market and, and that allows you to have a bit more credibility because when people talking about, in if, if I was to say to somebody, do you want to invest in a cryptocurrency? And if so, which one? They would say the first answer might be, I'm not certain. But if I was going to invest in one, Bitcoin's the one I've heard of. So it, it, it's a bit like when uh, you know, IBM used to sell their computers. You buy from IBM because you've heard of IBM. Right. Okay. And, but, but this, I, I'm sorry, Kieran. Uh, you, this is one of the rela- reasons our relationship is so strong because you're so you're so patient with me. Uh, if I was investing in Bitcoin, how do I make a return on my investment. That's why. That's what I struggle to understand. Is I understand there's an exchange rate. Because Peter McCormack was very good. He, he explained all that to me in the pub uh, on Sunday, and he bought a round of drinks, which is uh, obviously made him more popular with the Palace fans in the portions that didn't want to be filmed. Um, obviously, they drank the drink off camera, but uh, yeah, still the gesture was there. Um, he, he explained to me that there is an exchange rate for cryptocurrency, if you like. But if I was to invest a thousand pound which i haven't got in cryptocurrency how do i how do i make money on that right well what would happen is say for your thousand pounds you will end up with 0.1 bitcoin right and that that gets validated via this thing called blockchain and you would have a a wallet um and it's it's a digital wallet and provided you know where it is on your computer that that 0.1 Bitcoin is yours forever. Now, if the price of Bitcoin goes up, your 0.1 Bitcoin, let's say the price of Bitcoin goes uh, up from yes. 10,000 right, to 15,000, okay. your 0.1 Bitcoin goes up from 1,000 pounds to 1,500 pounds. So that's how you make money. But what goes up can come down. And we've seen in, in recent days, where everybody's now a bit, bit twitchy as to what's going to be happening in Ukraine. Um, a lot of the markets have been hit and also um, the cryptocurrencies have been hit because what investors tend to do is that they, they tend to go for, for core things, um, you know, fundamental things uh, at a time of a uh, potential crisis. Yeah, it's probably best for me not to get involved working on the basis that I I had my uh, digital season ticket in some kind of wallet on my phone and I managed to lose that. Uh, I don't know how, but... The, Club have had to send me eight paper tickets for the last games of the season. <laughs> <laughs> I, I blamed Ali. Uh, she was. Well, I thought you blamed Kevin Friend. To be fair, <laughs> I, I have, yeah, Kevin Friend tampered with my phone. Well, um, one more news story, Kieran, before we uh, go to our interview, uh, and it's an interesting one. And I was, I was slightly surprised 
to read this. Uh, but I trust producer guy implicitly, uh, so much so as you know that I don't check anything he sends me. Uh, but Tottenham have had more empty seats than any other club in the Premier League this season. Is that just a corollary of the fact that they've now got many more seats to fill? Um, I, I think that is a contributory factor. Um, I mean, this is a study by a, I think by a gambling website. So, you know, it's it's a glorified press release, right? Um, but um, according to this report, Spurs had an average of eight thousand empty seats per game. Now, when football clubs announce attendances, they actually they actually announce pretendances because they yes, announce the yes. number of seats sold rather than the uh, physical number of, of people attending. Um, so, um, you know, it says here that Spurs haven't had a crowd of more than 45,000 since December the 5th, which which strikes me as... Really? I, I, I find that a bit difficult to believe, personally. Well, an, an actual crowd they're talking about? Um, yeah, that, that, that appears to be the case, oh, yes. Well, that's Okay. Um, and, and I know, you know I'll be honest, and, and by all means, have a, have a, have a pop at us. You know, I, I went to a match at the Amex over Christmas, and it, and it didn't look more than half full to me because at eight o'clock on Boxing Day, when when you when the only way of getting to the ground is by train, is is uh, is an issue. So well, especially yeah, we are in, seeing... in the middle of a, a new pandemic as well. So yeah, yeah, because there's, there's the Palace Norwich game on the twenty eighth. I think there's it. it I doubt if there are more than eighteen thousand people in there, but the official attendance was twenty four thousand. Yes, yeah. So, um, is this going to be a long term issue for clubs? Are they genuinely losing money, or is it a case of you know season ticket holders just saying, "I'll I'll give it a swerve," in which case the club doesn't lose out. Um, but of course, every club does sell tickets on a match day basis. Um, Spurs has uh, you know, an international following. Uh, you know, it's it's especially uh, in Korea. It's uh, you know because of uh, because of Son. You know, he is incredibly popular over there, um, and and you know that that particular tourist market has dried up because yeah, fans aren't traveling to the UK because of COVID factors. So whilst football has bounced back in many regards. Uh, I think this is indicative that we are not over COVID from a football perspective as yet. Right. Um, interview time, Kieran. More and more people are interested in football's impact on the environment and how the game can become more sustainable. And, of course, the pioneer of all this was Dale Vince, who's the owner of Ecotricity and Forest Green Rovers. Uh, it's a story I'm particularly interested in because I reckon – I'm probably currently uh, contributing about £2,000 uh, a year to the cause of sustainability at Forest Green Rovers through the fact that I get my power through ecotricity, uh, which I didn't know about until Ali told me when I said we were interviewing Dale Vince. That's how little I'm allowed to contribute to the household running. Uh, but we spoke to Dale Vince about sustainability and about Dale, and about Dale Vince and about Forest Green. Dale, thank you very much for joining us. Before we talk more about the remarkable story of uh, Forest Green Rovers, tell us a little bit about your background and your commitment to sustainability. Was that always there or did you have a kind of St. Paul on the road to Damascus moment? Yeah, I guess I've been concerned about sustainability since I was a kid. 
And when I left school, I kind of wandered around looking for kind of how it was that I wanted to live, realized I didn't want to live in towns in a conventional way. So I dropped out and I spent 10 years living on the road in a variety of different vehicles, living off grid, mostly in Britain, but um, abroad as well for a year or so. Um, And I learned a lot of life skills along the way. I dropped back in in the early 90s when I was parked on a hill just outside Stroud and had the idea to build a big windmill. I was using a little windmill to power my trailer, so I had a familiarity with it. And I could see that it was just becoming possible. So my journey in business began then, about 1991. Yeah, I I guess when you say you learned life skills, I think they're probably very different to the few life skills I have, Dale, at the time. So you find yourself in 2010 – Forest Green, essentially a village team, are in the conference but going bust. Did you buy them as an act of local generosity or was the plan always to buy any club and make that the greenest in the world? I never had a plan to buy a club or run a club or even be a part of a club. I didn't buy Forest Green. I just took responsibility, which meant taking all of the debts and all of the problems, but I didn't buy them. And it was... um, it was really because Forest Green was a big part of the local community. I could see that. I went and met the guys and watched the game. I thought they were lovely people. It was a lovely club. And been going since 1889, you know, it was yeah. 120 years at the time. And I thought, look, I could do this. It's in my backyard. So why not just do it? Yeah, I, I believe from the research I did for my own, I, I believe they were started by Reverend Peach, which I think in the circumstances is probably a brilliant bit of nominative determinism. So when when did the idea then, was it right from the start of you taking over the club that you thought we have to make this a sustainable project or did, was this something that came to you when you started to get the club back on its feet? It was uh, something I bumped into straight away. So the whole thing was just a rescue mission and uh, I didn't give it a lot of thought in terms of you know where it might go, what it might involve or anything like that. And on day one, I bumped into the fact that we were serving red meat to the players in the way of uh, beef, beef lasagna. And I was horrified because that made me part of the meat trade and I couldn't have that. And um, that was just the first thing I bumped into. I think with, within a matter of days, couple of weeks, I realized that I would have to change just about everything about the club. Um, and that actually there was a great opportunity to align it with the principles of my day job which is at Ecotricity, where we focus on the three big issues of energy, transport, and food, because 80% of everybody's personal carbon footprint is wrapped up in those three things. And so we set about transforming the club into a modern, sustainable uh, football club. And, And were your own fans resistant at first? Because you're still, after all, based in a very rural community. And I'm sure some of those notions, your notions about meat, for example, weren't shared by quite a few of the people in the area. Yeah, and we're going back 10 years, of course, you know, veganism and plant-based living is kind of more common, more acceptable, less exceptional today than it was back then. Back then, it was a little bit radical for sure. And yeah, there was some resistance, but you know, I'm a fan of Star Trek and my favorite Star Trek villains are the Borg. And you know what they say about (laughs) resistance, don't you? (laughs) I'm going to get on to the way you deal with some away fans resistance later on using humor which always makes me laugh but let me mention a few specific things that are happening inside the the new lawn stadium it's powered by 100 percent green energy solar powered lawnmower you use rainwater to irrigate the pitch you provide electric car charge points these are all fairly simple things to do yet many other clubs still seem to think they're too radical and too expensive yeah i mean i think you hit the nail on the head there they are really simple things to do all of them actually um and they're not expensive and a lot of them save you money anyway um it's much easier than most people think it is 
and and Kieran presumably in terms of football finances in, in the long run it, it does become less and less expensive as the stadium gets more and more sustainable yes because it's an investment and the great thing about taking a sustainable perspective is that the return on the investment goes on forever once you've made that initial commitment uh, you know you you set up an irrigation area then yeah, so, so long as, as long as we've still got rain coming down, and let's face it, with global warming, that's not guaranteed. But it's it's as when, when that when that does when that, that that day arises, football probably isn't our first priority. Then then you've got something which is going to last forever. And Dave, you you plan to go even further because you your ambition is to build the greenest football stadium in the world. Is that still happening, or has COVID finances delayed it? Uh, yeah, both of those are true. It's been delayed, not particularly by COVID finances, but you know the whole pandemic just slowed everything down. Um, and yeah, we're still going ahead. We started work this week actually um, on an archaeological dig on site because uh, the southern end of the site has got a Roman villa underground. And before we, we're about to build some training pitches, hopefully before we do that, we've got to have a comprehensive dig of the site to see, um, well, see what's there really. Oh, well, you've really piqued my interest now because I was... Uh... Uh, I studied archaeology at university for the six weeks I was there before I was thrown out. But it's uh, <laughs> it's it's one of my passions. So I'll be I'd love to know how that goes. We'll talk more about the sustainability in in detail in a, in a little moment. But the big problem, of course, though, is that fans still have to travel from all over England to play at your ground. How can we reduce that impact? Would would you be in favour of regionalising leagues one and two to reduce the the amount that people travel to games? No, I wouldn't. I think that'd be a mistake. I think it'd be bad for football and bad for clubs. And I think that much is made of this issue of fan travel. Um, and I think it's unwarranted, actually. You know, okay. we, we we go to an away game once every fortnight on average, don't we? Yeah. We go to work every day. It's ten, 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 ten days a fortnight, you know. I think the amount of fan travel involved in football is actually really small in the scheme of things. Uh, but football is often kind of held up by this, uh, held to account for this. People say, oh, but that's the big problem. That, you know, that's the thing you can't solve, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think it's a big deal. But also at the same time, it's worth bearing in mind that the background is changing. Electric cars are taking over the roads now. Electric buses are just starting to hit the roads in 10 years' time. There'll be electric planes. And so the mode of travel that we're taking at the moment is greening up in the background. Yeah. I, we know from social media and hilarious podcasts, of which there are many that – some of the away fans who go to your ground are uh, a bit dubious about what's happening there, shall we say. But I like the fact, as we said before, that you acknowledge that through humour. I loved your April Fool's Day announcement that you were installing a meat scanner at, <laughs> at the turnstiles. Is that is that a deliberate policy of humour? Have you just got some funny buggers working for you at the club? Well, I just, uh, it, it's my preferred way of dealing with adversity, probably. And, you know, just to stay humorous, not everybody is going to, uh, agree with everything that you want to do or everything that you say. I mean, that's life. So I'm pretty relaxed about that. You know, and I love some of the chants we hear from away fans that, you know, they make me laugh. And uh, I just appreciate the banter of it and I'm just unbothered by it. So, yeah, we have a laugh along the way. Can you give us an example of some of those chants from the away fans? Well, it's got a bit old now, but the first time I heard it, it made me laugh really loudly. Uh, we were at Tranmere and one of our players went down and Tranmere fans, we have a little bit of history with Tranmere, it's worth saying. One of uh, Tranmere fans started singing, dirty vegan bastard, he's eating our grass. Maybe <laughs> 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 <Very> laugh. <laughs> That's very funny. Why have you got issues with Tranmere? Not issues, just a bit of bit of history. We, we beat them at Wembley in a, a playoff final from the National League a few years ago. 
And then uh, I think it was in the relegation year, probably, that it came to a bit of a head again. You know, they proposed this complicated formula for calculating a points per game average based on the last three years average or something, which would have saved them from relegation from League One to League Two. And we were just outspoken in saying we thought it was rubbish and they didn't appreciate that. And, and yet here you are, you find yourself, you're first in the table and they're second. And you're, I mean, this is a, a season to dream of, isn't it, at the moment? Yeah, and we play them next Saturday as well. So oh, wow. yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. Well, you've already alluded to the fact, Dale, that uh, attitudes to plant-based eating, veganism has, has changed a lot in the past decade. Um, and we've talked a lot about fans, but what about players? I mean, there are increasingly more elite athletes like Lewis Hamilton who have adopted a vegan diet. But do you ever have to convince transfer targets that you won't be forcing lifestyle changes on them? No, I think you know. I think the players understand it. The players are, are pretty open to this kind of thing as well. You know, I mean, they're they're looking for any enhancements they can get from the world of sports science and, and nutrition is a big part of that. We never find any issues with our players. In fact, the opposite. Every season, a handful of our players will embrace the diet themselves and take it home with them. So. I mean, the way it works is they're only vegan when we feed them, in effect. It just means that we only provide vegan food. What they do in their own time is up to them. They know that. But a bunch of our players every year feel the benefits of that food because we feed them like six times a week or something. Uh, and they take it into their lives proper. Same as our fans have. You know, they've come to the ground, tried the food, and loads of them have gone veggie and vegan. I mean, I'm, I'm being told by fans all of the time. It just never stops. Well, that must be very heartening for you. It's... It's clear, Dale, that despite the shameful efforts of some more reactionary elements of the media to denigrate the likes of Greta Thunberg, this message is getting through uh, across the world and to young people in particular. And in football now, we've got certain groups like Football for the Future. We've got UEFA's Cleaner Air Better Game Initiative. We have Brentford not replacing their kit next year for sustainability reasons. Is the message finally getting through to football, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's getting through to every walk of life. And I don't think football is any further behind or ahead of the curve than, you know, any other kind of area of life or business, if you like, you know. Um, so these these are important little steps. We've we've had a two-year rolling cycle for our kit for a very long time now, which is what Brentford are talking about. It just makes sense, <clears throat> you know, not to encourage overconsumption is one of the little things that we can do. What more has to be done, Dale? And what happens if we don't do it? Well, we tend to focus on three big things. It's a lovely, simple message that can cut through for people. We focus on energy, transport, and food because 80% of our personal carbon footprints are in those three things, how we power our homes, how we travel, and what we eat. And we make decisions every day. We spend our money on things that either make the world go round the wrong way or could help it go around uh, a better way, you know, a low-carbon way. And um, <clears throat> at our club, we've demonstrated how we can do that as a football club. We have a trail of information for people that shows what we're doing in different parts of the club and why we're doing it. And then we hope that percolates through to them. And they're, you know, when they're back home, they think, well, you know, I could do this at home, actually. And they start to adopt bits and pieces of that. But the really important message here is that we have a lot of power in our own hands because 80% of the problems are caused by what we spend our money on. Yeah, do you know what's interesting? My wife... Uh, she, yeah, Kieran will understand why, but my wife runs the household because I'm an idiot, essentially. But she was a very, very early adopter of ecotricity. You supply all our power needs. But I, I found myself in the first year think, thinking, well, I'm probably doing enough now. I've, I've, I'm, I've got sustainable energy. <laughs> and it, it was only after talking to my wife that I realised how much more 
I could do, but there isn't. I mean, I'm an intelligent middle class person, and, and there are times when I have to be reminded that there are simple things I can do. It's like just you know, for some reason, it becomes too much of a pain to put something in the right bin, especially late at night. But so there are so much more small individual things that that we can do that, even though we don't see the effect, it's still very important that we do them, isn't it? That's right, and it all makes a difference. And when millions of us do these little things, then it makes a bigger difference. I mean, that's that's a fact. So here you are, Dale, final question, because I know we have uh, time is this, issues. Is this the one uh, I've never heard before? Hopefully. If, is, I should be very disappointed if you have heard it. <laughs> so will I now. You're, you're, you're seven points clear, I believe, at the top of League Two. With a game in hand. With a game in hand. In, uh, in true, goal in, difference to die for. Sorry about I, that. Well, do you know what? That's one thing we've got. Palace have got this season, the goal. It does It does give you a little bit of breathing space, that one yes. point extra for goal difference. <laughs> um, every goal that Newcastle scores is a dagger to my heart. Um, <laughs> you're, you're top of League Two. If, in true Dr. Fauster style, Lucifer was to pop up and say, Dale, just just, just put a bit of meat back in the burger and I'll get you in the Premier League in five years. Is there anything that would tempt you? Is there any way that somebody came in to offer you money to invest in the club and they just said, we just want you to rain a little bit back on the green ideas and if so, we can get you into the, into the Championship, no. the Premier League? <clears throat> no, not at all. And in fact, since the beginning of this journey... I was told that uh, what we were doing would harm the club financially, we'd lose sponsors, people wouldn't come to games, all that kind of stuff. You know, and my answer at the time was, look, I didn't care. I wasn't going to do something that I didn't believe in purely for the sake of money. And that's our stance. You know, we won't take sponsors from the gambling industry, for example, obviously the meat industry. And, you know, we've, we're the same at Ecotricity. We've got very clear ethical lines. We won't cross them for money. Absolutely not. Which, which in a way means that you're successful already, doesn't it? That's right, because we measure success differently. Yeah, that's a that's a brilliant way to end the interview. On Dale, thank you so much uh, for your time. We we know how difficult it was for you to fit us in. Uh, we really appreciate that. It's very kind of you. No, my pleasure. Thank you. He was really interesting, Kieran. I thought there's a there's a couple of things. I think sometimes what Dale Vince has done with sustainability overshadows the actual achievements of the football club because it's based in a, a village called Nailsworth. It, it's possibly the smallest club or, or the club in the smallest village in the country. So it's remarkable that they're doing so well. Um, but I was particularly interested in two things. Well, one I was scared of when he said that uh, as a young man, when he went off grid, he learnt some life skills that have held him well which I don't think he meant just skinning rabbits. That, that, I, I, was quite, I was quite intimidated by that. Well, especially if he's a vegan. Well, absolutely, yeah. Well, maybe that's why he's a vegan. I skinned a rabbit. Well, I was made to skin a rabbit at school. Long story, but... Uh, I, I want shot a rabbit. Oh, Kieran. Yeah, yeah, no. Why? Yeah, and, and, well, it was sort of a it's bit annoying. of rites of passage. Yeah, 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 we've got a farm in Tipperary. So I was, I was marched out at the age of nine with my old man with a, with a rifle. Or with a, no, so with a shotgun, and uh, he says you, you've got to learn how to shoot. And I'm going, I don't, I don't, I'm, a, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Um, and uh, yeah, we came across, and I started going, yeah, yeah, what, 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 what wasn't one of my greatest days. I've, I've I felt bad about it ever since. Oh, I know. oh I'm glad you felt bad. I mean, I know I'm a hypocrite here, Curious. I'll happily eat them, but you know, I'll, I'll eat Watership down, but, but I would shoot them. It's um, it's taken a darker twist than I thought. This interview, um, this uh, part. Uh, I, I was very interested, though, in his answer to the question about fans travelling because I, 
I assumed, which you shouldn't do when you interview people, that when we talked about uh, cutting down the miles that fans travel to games by perhaps having a regional uh, League One and League Two, he was very much against it. Yes, he he's, he seemed to enjoy the the idea of travelling up and down the country, um, but also, I, you know, I'm thinking about it from from a fan perspective. I go to away games as often as I can, and ninety percent of the time I'm travelling by train, which which is a, you know a far more sustainable form of transport. Fair point. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think as fans we we are pretty ingenious, and, and if you are travelling in car, you know. Normally it'll be well. I'll drive this time, and we got, and you get five of you yeah. in the car, and so on. So uh, I think fans are are conscious of this, not explicitly, but implicitly, because they want to save money, and alternatively, they they want of a few jars. So you know, therefore, they'll they'll choose to travel uh, using public transport, and also traveling home after a decent result on trains is a fantastic experience. Yeah, indeed, that's true. Yeah. Um, so I'm told. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, I had uh, a, a very nice moment after interviewing Dale Vince when, because uh, Ed, my son, is a, is a big fan of Dale and his uh, his ethos. And Ed said to me afterwards, "It must have been must have been strange, Dad, uh, talking to the person who actually supplies your electricity and gas." I said, "I don't know why you think that's strange, Ed, because you're doing it right now." <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, he's very interesting, and I, I I would like to talk to him again actually because I think this the idea of sustainability in football it it's only it's it's slowly taking hold at other clubs, isn't it, Kira? But as we discussed in the interview, it's not expensive to be sustainable. No, because um, you've got to invest. But but yeah, we, we'd be talking about earlier about you getting a return on investment on your Bitcoin. Well, you can get a return on investment in terms of solar panels, water butts, um, you know, recycling, and so on, very very quickly. And with uh, you know traditional carbon based uh, energy prices rising quite sharply, um, especially if Russia does get I- a That's bit true. icy with the rest of us over the course of, of 2022 and beyond, then um, it, it, they, these things become even more cost-efficient than they were before. Yeah, we we have a water butt, Kira, which is a fancy way of saying we've got a giant plastic barrel uh, which collects rainwater and uh, drain pipe off-run. I'm not entirely sure what how I'm saving the planet with it, because we don't do anything with it. And the cats worked out how to jump up, knock the lid off, and drink the water which is really annoying because I insist on supplying her with clean water every morning, which she won't drink. She will happily drink out of that. And the fire pit that we bought for Christmas, which is now also covered in <laughs> full of water. Uh, I, I make an effort, Kieran, but I'm just not very good at these things. Um, <laughs> if you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, that would be very kind of you. And please go to patreon.com slash price of football. Uh, don't forget our pod will always be free to air for everybody. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, please email us at questions at price of And before we say goodbye, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thank you again, everybody, for the feedback, for the messages and so on. We, we, we genuinely appreciate that uh, you, you, you take the time to, to engage with us. Um, if you want to use Patreon as, as, a, as a method of showing a bit of thanks, for, for as little as a pound a month, so that can be done. And uh, thank you very much for that. Um, but if, if you just want to give us some positive vibes, if you just want to make us feel slightly more groovy in the charts uh, when it comes to Apple and so on, and somehow 
we actually meet we, we managed to reach number nine in the Apple sports charts we did. earlier this week. We've got yeah. we've got no idea how, but it's partly due to your reviews. When you when you when you go on to Apple or Spotify, whatever it's going to be, um, if you can give us a review, uh, yeah, if you'd like to give us five stars, we'd be very grateful. Um, and, it, and it doesn't matter what you say, by all accounts. Um, you could say you would rather the show was hosted by Alan Brazil and Andrew Ridgely. And the reason <laughs> the reason why I mentioned those two is that, that my book is is in the in the uh, is somehow somewhere in the Amazon sports charts, um, and I am behind Andrew Ridgely and Alan Brazil. <laughs> Uh, immediately above me, so I thought, that, and I thought well, actually those would be pretty fantastic. Uh, yeah, I've got some Alan Brazil stories that we we can't talk about on air. I have to say, uh, and yes, Kier, we we desperately need your good karma, but I suspect we're going to have less of it this week after you admitted to shooting Bugs Bunny in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> I'm for the